All right, so um, growing up, you know, I seem to always tell a, a crazy story about growing up. I've got plenty. Um, I should write a book. Uh, so growing up, my mom was an avid reader. She loved to read. She was actually an English teacher at, at some point, and she instilled that same love of reading in my brother and I. Uh, my dad, on the other hand, is an accountant, and so he would quiz us on percentages during long car trips, uh, which is a real treat when you're 10 years old and you're confined to a Chevrolet Cavalier for eight hours. But anyway, when, when we were young, mom was insistent that we read all the classics. That was like her sticking point. You know, we had to read all the classics. And um, yeah, they, they were all right, but so we had this trade-off. For every classic we read, she would take us to the bookstore and we could buy the next book in the Hardy Boys series. Because really, if you read the Hardy Boys series as a, as a young kid, you want to be a detective. And just as a side note, uh, one year I actually got the, um, the Hardy Boys detective kit, uh, which is pretty cool. It comes with a plaster for capturing mysterious footprints you may come across. And so I'll have you know that I was so good with this kit that I was able to determine that m the mysterious paw prints in our backyard were, in fact, from Mr. Whiskers, the family cat. So I may have missed a career opportunity there. But anyway, one of the books that I read uh, growing up was uh, the novel Robinson Crusoe uh, by Daniel Defoe. And, you know, some of you may know that novel. It's about a shipwrecked mariner in the late 1700s who survives on a desert island, 28 years on a desert island, uh, one that was visited and inhabited at times by both cannibals and pirates. And so initially all he has is a dog and two cats. And then, you know, he does, you know, go back to the shipwreck uh, to get some supplies uh, time after time. But, but here's, here's from the cliff notes. It says, Crusoe made immediate plans for food and then shelter to protect himself from wild animals. He brought as many things as possible from the wrecked ship, things that would be useful later to him. In addition, he began to develop talents that he had never used in order to provide himself with necessities. Cut off from the company of men, he began to communicate with God, thus beginning the first part of his religious conversion. So he's desperate. He is desperate, and he falls into depression and hopelessness. However, in the chest, in the captain's chest, he discovers a Bible, and he begins to read it. And as he begins to read it, he comes to this striking conclusion. He says this, he said, I learned to look more upon the bright side of my condition and less upon the dark side and to consider what I enjoyed rather than what I wanted. And this gave me sometimes such secret comforts that I cannot express them and which I take notice here to put those discontented people in mind of it who can't enjoy comfortably what God has given them because they see and covet something that he has not given them. All our discontents about what we want appeared to me to spring from the want of thankfulness for what we have. And so what we have here is this shift in thinking. We have a shift in thinking. He goes from wishing that he had better things, wishing he had better food, better clothing, better shelter, better circumstances to being content with what he does have, with what God has given him. And so we, sh we see a shift from coveting to contentment. 
And this is where our focus this morning will be as we close out our series on the Ten Commandments with the final commandment, thou shalt not covet. And so for a quick history, um, we're all pretty familiar now with what was going on during this time um, after being in here for ten weeks. But the Israelites had been in slavery 400 years. They were about 50 days out of it. They were at the base of Mount Sinai, and they hear the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, it's, it's brutal for them. The, the sound, you know, the images were so brutal. Hearing from God that they specifically asked that Moses do that in the future on their behalf. In fact, they, they say that in verse 18. Please do this on our behalf. If you don't, we will surely die the next time we hear from the Lord. And so if you remember when God speaks to them, the first thing he does, he tells them who he is. He says, I am the Lord your God. And the next thing he does, he tells them what he's done. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so in looking at the Ten Commandments as a review, the first four are the vertical commandments centered on man and God. The remaining six are uh, man and uh, man, the Israelites with each other, which sometimes are referred to as the horizontal commandments. But as we look to the final commandment, we see something completely different, something we haven't seen at all in the commandments. And this is the only one that, as Jen Wilkin states, states in this series we've been reading, in the Ten Words to Live By series, that hides in the heart. And it's a progression. It's a progression. Don't do it. Don't say it. Don't think about it. Don't do it, don't say it, don't think about it. The progression through the Ten Commandments. And this quote from her kind of expands on what she's getting at here. And uh, she says, In a clear list of prohibitions, the tenth word is unexpected. For all the other nine, our neighbor could hold us to account fairly simply by gathering witnesses to testify to our compliance or lack thereof. But here, at the end of the list we find a sin of a different nature. Covetousness hides in the heart. So the title of this morning's sermon is from the chapter Honor in the Heart, coinciding with, with the final chapter of her book. And so the scripture this morning, Exodus chapter 20, uh, we're going to read 1 through 17, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh is a, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And so the first point this morning is a covetous heart. So here we see and we read that God says you shall not covet. So, so what is covet? What does it mean to covet something? In the original language here, in the Hebrew language, the root word used was hamad. And it means to desire, it means to long for, it means precious, costly, it means to feel delight. And that sounds good, right? That, that those things sound good. You know, none of this you know, delight, desire, none of this seems to be that big of a deal until you see this. The exact same word here, Hamad, is also used to describe the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it goes on, this same word describes the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We have this word again in Joshua 7, chapter 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. And took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So this same word, this same word that we see throughout the Old Testament is a desire. It can be a covet. It's used 20 times in the Old Testament. It's used as desire. It's used as covet. It's used as delight, pleasant, beauty, lust, and delectable things. So knowing this, see how closely and interchangeably this, this term, this word is used, desire. Desire both good and bad, both godly and ungodly. So in this case, don't focus so much on, on the context, but look at the power of this word. This is a strong word. This is a word that's so strong, it's used to describe the pleasing effects of the trees in the Garden of Eden before sin, before sin when everything was perfect. And it should get our attention. And this, this has to get our attention. Because this ungodly, this selfish desire, this covet, as it's used in this case, grows within our hearts. And it's on us. And we're all affected by it. We're all affected by it because of the original sin. And it is within us. And it will condemn us to death. And it has condemned us to death because outside of Christ we're condemned to death. C.S. Lewis says this about this. He said, God made us, invented us as man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. 
the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There's no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God can't give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There's no such thing. It's illogical. So we covet when we want something that we don't need, that God has not provided for us. We covet when we fail to recognize God's gift to us through Jesus Christ, but rather focus on what we need to be comfortable. You know, it is godly to enjoy what God has given us to enjoy. It's perfectly fine to enjoy good company, good food, good vacations, uh, good grades, and so on. But we enjoy them as a God-given gift, knowing they're temporary. Knowing that they're all temporary, because knowing that our happiness and joy, and that our deep-rooted peace doesn't come from them. Because today, in this world, we are comfort seekers. We seek comfort. Tim Keller once preached a sermon on this, on this very topic, about how much we want to be comfortable. You know, we place comfort very high in this country, so much that, that I believe uh, most of us would consider it an essential need, a basic need. You know, I, I remember uh, attending a church service years ago, and the pastor congratulated all of us for being there because it was raining outside. And I, I'm not talking about a tropical storm. I'm talking about just a simple spring rain. We desire comfort. And in trying to fill this desire, we grow within our hearts the desire to have what others have. But God never told us that would be the case, did he? He never told us that would be the case. He never said, believe in me and I will give you a comfortable life. He never said that. In fact, the opposite of that is true. Jesus himself tells us that in this present world it's going to be bad, but in the same breath he tells us not to concern ourselves with that. Because why? Because John 16, 33, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Because he overcame that, and he overcame that for us. So when we allow our hearts to covet, that sin begins to grow in our hearts. And the message that we send, whether we know it or not, the message that we send is that God got it wrong. God, there are things that you have not given me that I want and that I need. And it's not fair that I don't have them. And church, if left unchecked, this type of sin begins to grow. And it's like credit card debt. It begins to compound on itself until eventually the age-old saying that we've heard becomes true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. The heart that covets. The heart, and now this is a bit cliche, but it is true. The heart, as mentioned by the author of this book, is just like a womb for sin, especially a heart that covets. It starts there, it grows there, it develops there, and eventually, if left unchecked, it is acted on from there. 
So going further into this commandment, we see something else. We see the second point of our sermon this morning. We see the jealous heart. And so we go from coveting someone's possessions to becoming jealous of what they have. And worse, becoming jealous of their successes. Becoming jealous of their blessings. Kind of like a coveting 2.0, if you will. You see, sin is a progression, not unlike sanctification. It progresses. It starts in the heart. It pollutes the mind. And it ends by affecting our very actions. So wanting what someone else has... We've already mentioned this. Wanting what somebody else has is coveting. But it continues, doesn't it? It continues into jealousy. It continues into greed. It can develop into hatred. Have you ever found yourself secretly angry when good things happen to bad people? Or in your opinion, would good things happen to people who don't deserve it? Have you found yourself secretly thinking, you know, they don't deserve that. They're not worth that promotion. They're not worth that salary. This good thing should not have happened to them. So so the awful part about about this, the awful part about this thinking, this train of thought, is what it implies. Because what it implies in the deep, dark corners of our hearts it implies that it should have happened to us, that we deserved it. We deserve that. We deserve that more than them, and that should have been ours. So in, in studying for this sermon, I read an interesting article, article by Sean Nolan. Um, he says this. He says this about this. As a side note, I always have to go back and like, like, look at these guys before I quote them, because I'm terrified, like, one day I'm going to quote somebody that's, like, you know, you know waiting in a you know, arrest warrant or something like that. And so he, he checked out pretty good, I think. Um, but if anybody knows anything, just catch me at next steps. Um, but anyway, he says this about this topic. He says, jealousy is how we tell God we aren't content with him and his provision. When we're jealous, we're not happy with the gifts God has given us. We want the gifts he's given to someone else. We scorn our daily bread and fantasize about someone else's stew. You can see the biblical references there. In David's example, his own wife, a gift from the Lord, wouldn't satisfy. He'd take Uriah's instead. When we resolve to take our lives into our own hands to acquire things that don't belong to us, there is no end to the heinous acts we'll commit Adultery and murder are just a sampling. And this affects all of us, pastors and elders and deacons and partners. It affects all of us because he continues. He says, for the pastor who takes his eyes off his own flock to envy the platform of another, jealousy takes a more sanctified form. And he's speaking from personal experience here. He says he may not kill anyone. He might find himself opposing the very work of God in favor of the things of man. And Nolan, like I said, he is a pastor, and he goes on to say, I know because I found myself awake at night wishing God had given me a vision for the book my friend was writing. When overtaken with jealousy, we can never pray your kingdom come because our hearts have already decided that they don't want God's kingdom. They want their own distorted kingdom where they are king 
and everyone recognizes them for it. So this, this jealousy, these thoughts, they're misguided. And when we justify based on what we deserve, we are really, really getting off base. Because I want to be clear about what we deserve. So the only thing we deserve in this world, the only thing 100%, without a doubt, that we truly deserve is the eternal wrath of God. As sinners, that is what we deserve. Our Creator, being gracious, provided us a way out from this. Knowing that we're sinful beings, knowing that we deserve punishment, knowing that we deserve death, he provided us a way out. But now here's where our mindset can get really evil. When we, when we focus on what we deserve, what we're saying is we are better than them. If, we're, if we focus on we deserve this more than the other person, we're saying we're better than them. If we spend time in honest self-reflection, I believe all of us here can, re- can relate. Yeah, I certainly can. Because we think we're better than them. We think we're more moral, more righteous. Because why? Because we go to church. Because we live right. Because we follow the Ten Commandments. This is exactly how Paul used to think. This is exactly how Paul used to think. He says this in Philippians 3. He says, and pay, pay attention to, to this thought process. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Wow. So he's saying here, hey, listen, if this were about following the rules, if this were about following the rules, if this were about observing the traditions, if this were about having the right pedigree, you can't compete against me. You cannot compete against me. I've got it all. I've got the right qualifications. Hey, what about obeying the commandments? He says, I'm blameless in that. And that is incredible. That is incredible when you think about it. It, it almost reminds me of the, uh, the training camp holdouts in the NFL when they have their agents speaking on their behalf. You know, you, we've all seen it. You know, listen, Tom, I've been playing football since I was a fetus. I've won championships from Pop Warner to the Super Bowl. You know, my dad's in the Hall of Fame, and I'm not getting paid what I'm worth. Or the famous Ricky Bobby quote when he's being interviewed by Dick Berger, and he says, well, Dick, here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. 
you know, nobody can hang with my stuff. I'm just a big, hairy American winning machine. If you're not first, you're last. I've always wanted to quote Ricky Bobby in a sermon. Uh, thank you all for, for helping me with that today. But what does Paul do? Paul goes on to say, none of that matters. He says, none of that matters. He says, that doesn't achieve salvation. It means nothing. He actually calls it rubbish in verse 8. And it is. It is rubbish. Because the righteousness that we have comes through Christ. It comes through our faith in Christ, not by scoring a 10 out of 10 on some sort of spiritual test, you know, not, not achieving an A on some, some Ten Commandments evaluation report. It comes from Jesus so that no man can boast. If we look to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It makes the bones rot. Bones don't rot very easily, do they? So you see the point Paul is trying to make here. It is poison. This jealousy is poison. It is strong. It is deadly. It's a sin. It's counter to the ten, tenth commandment. And what it does is it takes a sinful heart and moves it into sinful action. Because only through Christ and his righteousness and the work he did on our behalf can we pass that can we get past that can we overcome it can we overcome it and find contentment which brings us to our third point this morning the content heart so what is contentment uh, easy answer is the is the opposite of covet um, you know we talked this morning first about comfort and how in our country we've been moved uh, to view comfort as an essential need, as a requirement. And it's not. It's not a need. It's not a promise from God. But we can have it. And we've seen this. I've seen this my entire life. I've seen people who are content. Probably the, the best example that I've ever seen was in 2013. I was in Afghanistan. I was the commander of an engineer company task with taking U.S. bases, making them smaller, and then transferring them to the Afghan army. As a side note, some of you may know Greg Arnold. His son was actually with me, so just, just a, a cool thing we learned uh, recently that I, I had his son there with me, so small world. But anyway, um, we had a side project. Uh, we were in Zabal province outside of a town called Kalat, and we had a side project, um, which, which was rare. Usually we had a very clear mission. And um, we were notified by the brigade that we worked for that there was, a, there was actually a girls' school in downtown Kalat, and um, very small, just um, made out of uh, cinder blocks, uh, had a metal roof. I did not have power, um, did not have plumbing. And I, you know, to be a girls' school there was, was kind of a big deal. Um, what, what they wanted, they want, wanted the ability just to have a little bit of power so they could run these old, like, 1990 Dell computers. And so they did have um, a stack of solar panels, so they asked us being engineers at the time, vertical engineers, they asked, hey, can you, can you do something? Can you come up there, install some solar panels, maybe wire these things in? And I, you know, there's obviously a little more to it, but um, yes, yeah, absolutely, we said we could do it. And so we did, and yet it took about... Uh, you know, three or four days to do it, 
And, and it was cool to see, you know, it was cool to see these girls, you know, they loved this school. This school that we would think uh, by U.S. standards should be condemned. Uh, it should be condemned. Um, they loved it. Like I said, it had no power, uh, no plumbing. Uh, they were under a constant threat by the Taliban for attending. Uh, their mothers were under constant threat from the Taliban by letting them go. And they were under also constant threat from their husbands. Many of them, the husbands did not know their daughters uh, were there. Um, I think I have a few pictures. Um, that is their bathroom. That's their toilet. And so, again, it's, it's amazing to see. Um, and so... They had nothing. Anyway, in a few days, we wired these panels. And again, it wasn't really a big deal for us. But at the end, they asked if we could attend the grand opening. And, um, and that's really exactly how they described it, um, a grand opening. And I'd like to show the next picture of the grand opening. These are the girls uh, that came. And they all attended. Their mothers attended. They even brought the governor of Zabul province to attend. And they were so happy. I mean, there were two receptacles per classroom, and these girls were so happy. We had a box of little stuffed animals to give them completely content. It's probably the biggest lesson I've learned in my life on what that looks like. So it's really cool. Um, in, a, in, a, in a book uh, written by Jeremy Burroughs, he says this about Christian contentment. He writes that Christian contentment is the sweet, inward, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And this is exactly what we see in Scripture as well. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all, three, all things through him who strengthens me, from Philippians chapter 4. So contentment is not ignoring the pain and suffering of living in a fallen world. It's not ignoring that. You know, we don't have to ignore that. We don't have to ignore it. We've talked about lament during our Summer in the Psalm series. Uh, we are shown great examples of what that looks like uh, from David uh, in the Psalms uh, to Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany. So we've seen it. But contentment is knowing that God has given us what we need. And recognizing that we may never understand parts of this world, this side of creation. You know, God never ponders our situation and thinks, wow, uh, that was a mistake. You know, you should have gotten that job or, or that stinks for him. He deserved that race, that raise, but, you know, his, his boss is a moron and, you know, didn't see his value. You know, he's not surprised uh, by any of this. He's not surprised by any of it. And though he doesn't delight in suffering, he does promise us that he will use it for good. And it may not be good. Andrew preached a sermon on that six months ago. It may not be good, but it will be used for good. And in the end, he will bring good from it. So contentment, uh, as we wrap up this morning, is recognizing that. It's knowing that, and it's trusting that. So where do we find it? Where do we find that contentment that we talked about in this last point? Well, I think we, it's probably easier to start from where we don't find it. We're not going to find it 
in the world. We're not going to find it in society because the world tells us that it's here, that it's available here, that it's available here and here on earth. Uh, you can look at any self-help aisle in Barnes & Noble or Google sell, or go on Amazon and search self-help. The world has provided tons of ways to do it. They all end up lacking because the world says we find it in our jobs. They say we find it in our possessions. They say we find it in our children and in our marriages. If, if that were the case, let, let's, from, a, from a man's perspective here, let's say this. Let's say you're a man. You've made millions of dollars. You have a massive house. You have a supermodel for a wife. For a job, you're a professional quarterback, and you have three Super Bowl rings. Does that sound like that should provide contentment? Does that, do you think, well, so let's actually hear from one. This is from uh, Tom Brady. Matt Chandler preached on this uh, years ago, and he referenced this, but it's so important then as it was now. This is what Tom Brady says in his interview after his third Super Bowl. He says, there's times when I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, it is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? So how striking is that? And if that's not the best example of how the world leaves us lacking in, com in contentment, I don't think I have anything else for you this morning. Because true contentment is found in Jesus Christ. And it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's found in our belief in him, our belief that we worship a God who is holy, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. And further, we believe and we know that we're sinners. And I think first and foremost, we have to acknowledge that. We have to view ourselves with that horror, as C.S. Lewis refers to it, that we are distorted by sin. We're distorted by sin, and our world is distorted by sin. And not just our collective sin, but our own individual personal sin. Our own personal sin is an affront to God. The choices we make, the actions we take, our own sin has to be accounted for. Because our God is perfect, and part of being perfect is he is perfectly just. And a perfectly just God has to punish that sin. So we individually sent Christ to that cross. We bear the responsibility for that just as much as those Roman soldiers who drove the nails into his wrist. We are just as responsible. And that's awful to think about, isn't it? When you see those images of our Savior hanging from the cross in pain and bleeding and suffering, and we think, we did that. We did that. And the reason I bring this up, Paul tells us, Paul tells us this in his letter to the church at Corinth. He says, I write these things not to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, because children who are loved are admonished. And this is the message that we need to hear. This is the reminder that we need, because we think back to Christ, 
and we think of his love for us, the fact he would do that, the fact that he would go to that cross for us. And not only did he go to that cross for us, he went willingly. Being fully God and fully human, he had the ability to reconcile us to our creator. He had the ability to take the punishment that a perfectly just God has to administer to take that on our behalf, in our place, so that we can be forgiven. And church, this morning, that is the grace and the mercy and the power and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is a love we will never be able to recreate here on earth in our current form. This gift is of such a magnitude that we're bound by our very language in describing it. And this, this knowledge is where contentment comes from. It comes from understanding that we truly deserve nothing but the wrath of God, yet he loves us so much that he said, let me take it for them if it be your will. So don't let the world dictate to you where your contentment comes from, because if you do, you're going to spend not only your life in violation of the commandment, you will experience a life full of wanting and coveting for what others have, wanting for a better position, wanting for a better situation, and jealous of, of those around you that have what you want. So today ends our series on the Ten Commandments, and it, it coinciding with our study of Ten Words to Live By. I don't know about you, but I've learned a ton in this series. Yeah, I've learned that these commandments, there are so much more than what we initially look at. There's a depth to them that, that really unlocks the beauty of the gospel. And I said this a few weeks ago, and I think sometimes when we conduct a study such as this, it's convicting, but it can get downright disheartening in a way. You know, we read and we study uh, these commandments, and we're reminded time and time again how we fall short. Um, and sometimes we look at it, and it, it seems that the path in front of us just looks too steep. And again, this is the point. You know, the point isn't to magnify that shame and that guilt. It's not to magnify those feelings. It's to magnify our need for a Savior. They're here. They exist to magnify our need for Jesus Christ because he's here. Jesus Christ is here. He lives. He loves. He is here with us now. And as believers, we can walk through life with that knowledge. Delight in this. Delight in the commandments just as the psalmist did because delight in them knowing that we are forgiven. And if you're here today and you've put your faith and your trust in him, you are forgiven for your past present and future sins you know god did not promise us an easy life but he did promise us an eternal one he promised us an eternal life in a perfect world through his son and he always keeps his promises if you're here today and you don't know him if you're here today and you haven't done that what are you waiting for are you here today and, and you're suffering? If, if you're suffering through marriage problems, if you're suffering through financial problems, uh, maybe health diagnoses, if, if you're suffering with addiction, if you're tired of the same old routine of trying to find peace and comfort with the things of this world, 
and waking up every morning with remorse and regret. What are you waiting for? Are, are you here today? Are you full of shame and guilt this morning? All of that, suffering, shame, guilt, all of that, that is a heavy, heavy burden. That is a heavy burden that you were not designed to carry. And you can lay it down this morning. You can drop that this morning. You can lay that burden. You can lay that shame. You can lay that guilt at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And you can do that today because he's not ashamed of you. He hasn't given up on you. He loves you so very much that he will leave the 99 and come to you. So turn it over to him. Put your faith there. Put your trust there. Tell him you want to give your life over to him. Ask him for forgiveness and walk out of this church this morning redeemed. Redeemed by the creator God who knows your name. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for your church. Thank you for those that lead it, Father. Father, this morning we lift up the world. We lift up our nation. We lift up uh, all who need you at this time. Father, we need peace. And we need your peace. And we need the peace, Father, that only you can provide. Father, help us to remember that as we walk through this world, that we are a reflection of you. Keep us mindful of that in circumstances such as this, in circumstances of war and death and destruction, Father, that we have that peace, and we need to show that peace to the world so we can show you to the world. Help us to be different than the world. Help us to stand apart from the world. Father, we are so gracious for what you've done for us. Father, to take that sin Father, to, to willingly go to the cross so that we can spend our eternity perfectly in a perfect world with you. We can never be grateful enough. Thank you, Father. We ask all this in your mighty name.